Hey, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast. I'm your host, Howard Jacobson, and today we're going to talk about skin. So I'm all into health. And having said that, I'm embarrassed to admit that what really has motivated me to get healthy, to eat well, to exercise has not been the state of my heart or liver or lungs or kidneys or bowels. It's really been looks. I found out that the most reliable motivator for me to eat healthy and exercise and do all that good stuff is vanity, is wanting to have a body that I'm proud of and that other people find attractive. And so we can talk a lot about weight and obesity and weight loss and all that. But today we're going to talk about another aspect that is all about health and also quite related to our looks, which is skin. My guest is a lifestyle medicine informed dermatologist, Dr. Rajani Kata, and we're going to be talking all about the things we can do to get healthy and healthy looking and healthy feeling skin through lifestyle. Her book is called Glow, The Dermatologist's Guide to a Whole Foods Younger Skin Diet. Before we get there, three quick announcements, and all of them have to do with ways in which you can give me money. <laughs> the first one is we're starting very soon our next coach training program. If you're interested in becoming a wicked effective health coach to help people achieve their health and fitness goals, especially when they have been trying and failing, self-sabotaging, all that stuff, there are tools. There are techniques. There are ways of talking to people that can get them unstuck. Find out more and apply at wellstartcoach.com. Second, if you are one of those people who's been feeling stuck and, you know, these days with the pandemic, with the uncertainty, with the political upheaval, it's certainly understandable that we want to cocoon ourselves and maybe retreat into some old bad habits that we know are not serving us. We know we need to be our best for the days ahead. Um, if you'd like to hire me as your health coach, you can find out more about my signature laser coaching program. That's a full year of unlimited laser sessions, 15 minute short sessions which are recorded and you get the homework and then you self schedule when you're ready for the next one. And you can find out all about that and sign up at plantyourself.com slash laser. And third, a reminder that this podcast accepts no advertising dollars. It is free for everyone and it is financially supported by those who can afford it. So if that's you, if you like the mission of the show and you'd like to work shoulder to shoulder with me to spread the word, you can do so at plantyourself.com slash gift. All right, it's time to find out how to be comfortable in our skins literally through proper diet and lifestyle. Without further ado, Dr. Raja Nikata, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast. Oh, I'm so excited to be here today with you. Let's talk about skin, shall we? Oh, yes. One of my favorite topics. Uh, good, good. Um, I mean, I've been thinking, you know, I've been thinking for many years, like, how do we reach people with a message of eating healthier? And 
you know, like we know that just talking to people about being healthier doesn't always motivate. So we talk about weight loss and people can get very exhausted about weight loss. Lately, yes. um, I've been working with uh, Team Shurzai to put together some some courses on preventing Alzheimer's, which a lot of people find, in, you know, inspiring and motivating. But when I saw your work and you have this book called Glow, uh, but the dermatologist's guide to a whole foods younger skin diet. I'm like, that's the ticket. Like everybody <laughs> cares about how their skin looks, and you know, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Yeah, it's very immediate, isn't it? Um, as opposed to hypertension, maybe. Um, you know, your skin kind of speaks to you on a daily basis. I think. Yeah, I mean, I was just thinking like I was going to go eat something and I, I have a gamut of like, you know, choices and standards and none of them is terrible, but some of them aren't great. But if I think about like heart disease or, you know, I run, so I may not gain that much weight, but I'm thinking like, oh, I don't want my skin to show people what I ate like tomorrow. <laughs> it really helped like reading your book really helped me. Um, do better. I found it very immediately motivating. Oh, I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, I think a lot about how we've got all these great health messages, but some people do respond to certain things better than others or respond more strongly to certain cues than others. <laughs> so we're going to get into into the book, into the science. But first, I'd like to learn a little bit about you and your background. How, how did you come to dermatology? Ah, well, when I was a student at uh, the Baylor College of Medicine, I did a rotation in pediatric dermatology. And I was really, um, just really drawn into helping children with eczema, which um, has only grown more common since that time. And so my specialty is actually helping people with chronic dermatitis of the skin. Hmm. And so that's uh, where I've spent the bulk of my career. Um, so I imagine that pediatric uh, dermatology is seeing people with like disfigurements with with things that can that not only could be dangerous and painful, but also like really reflect on their self image, especially at that at that young age. Yeah, that's correct. And I have to say pediatric dermatology is what inspired me. But my practice is adult dermatology now. Mm -hmm. And um, whether it's a child or an adult, you're absolutely right. I mean, something that's very visible, let's say if it's on your skin or your hands, um, it can really affect people's um, self-perception and also how others respond to them. So I think it, um, yeah, it, it can be a real concern for many people. Mm -hmm. um, so when did you... Um, arrive at the heresy that lifestyle can affect our skin because <laughs> I, I never heard that. You know, I had I had, you know, rashes as a kid and like no one, no one ever in the medical world ever said that what I was doing or not doing, except, you know, except maybe there was a debate for like 10 years, like does chocolate cause acne? But that was oh, it. Yeah. Right. Like, yeah. So how did how did you make food and lifestyle like a significant part of your practice, a defining part? Well, it's really interesting you say that because um, there are sort of trends in medicine, right? Where um, and if you look at the history of diet and dermatology, they talk about how in the early 1900s um, people would talk about, let's say for acne, how important it was to stay away from sugar, let's say. And then we had research that came out into the 1960s that 
um, was not well designed. Um, and they were small studies, but they got this message out that, no, there's not a connection. And I remember I trained um, 25 years ago. And at that time, we were still telling our acne patients, no, you don't have to worry about what you eat. And so it's only really in the last 10 to 15 years that the research has started coming out. And as you start to pay attention to the research, so I started to really pay attention to all of these research studies that were coming out. And it really drew me into the fact that, you know, our journals were publishing this amazing research, but it wasn't getting out into practice. And so that's when I really started um, not only seeing what research was out there, but really starting to put that together into educational materials and to review articles and trying to reach other physicians and also trying to reach my patients. Um, and, and I've been talking about food a long time just because of what I do. I specialize in allergic reactions of the skin. Mm. And so I got so many questions about food allergies. And that was kind of the launching pad to me to say, you know what? I'm going to learn everything there is to know about this area so that I can really guide my patients well. Uh-huh. I guess there was a, there must have been some sort of cognitive dissonance around the message. Food doesn't affect your skin, except if you have a food allergy, then it definitely affects your skin. Like it seems like <laughs> one of the other one of the others isn't true. Yes, that's such a good way of putting it. I've never thought of it quite that way. But you're right for you know, for centuries in dermatology, we've been talking about, okay, if you have a vitamin deficiency, you are going to develop a rash, you know, whether that's like scurvy or pellagra, like we've known about that. Or if you have diabetes, we know, we've known forever that that's going to affect your skin. Maybe you have poor wound healing, or maybe you develop certain rashes that are unique to patients with diabetes. Um, so you're right, cognitive dissonance. Yes, it affects it in this way, but um, we're we're now starting to sort of circle around that conversation and approach it more holistically. Like, yes, it affects your skin in many more ways than that. Hmm. Hey, can you talk a little bit about the study design? Like, was it like we know that the, the sugar industry has been notorious and recently discovered that they've been, you know, fiddling around with research for a long time to to implicate hmm. other things besides sugar? Were they involved in this 1960s research? I do not think so. I had I had not heard of that. I think it was just a matter of not being designed well. And, you know, some of the foundational studies that affected what we told our patients for decades were based on these small studies, like 60 patients and with acne. And they gave half of them a chocolate bar and half of them a very similar bar that had no chocolate, but did have sugar and trans fats. And so... At the end of, and I think the studies were only like four weeks long. At the end of those four weeks, they said, well, these two groups of patients, you know, they have the same degree of acne. And so it clearly is not the sugar. Uh, it's clearly not the chocolate. Mm -hmm. So diet does not affect acne. But I mean, as, as I'm sure you just picked up on, the, on this, you know, yes, that other bar didn't have any chocolate, but it still had sugar and it still had trans fats. So it was kind of a matter of looking at the wrong culprit. Mm. Um, but... Yeah, yeah, it just affected us for a long time. Yeah, I mean, because even at that time, like I knew people who would eat certain things and their skin would break out. And we would say, well, you know, you must have read that somewhere. It was probably it's probably placebo effect or psychosomatic. I'm wondering how 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 research when you're talking about a food like chocolate, like how do you fake people out about whether they're eating chocolate? Like how did the studies get better designed? Yeah, well, now, um, so the study designed 
that I thought was really interesting was they approached it from a different angle. So they took, again, randomized controlled trial. They took two groups of young men and one group had a low glycemic index diet. Mm. So they were told to replace all their processed carbs with whole foods. And the other group was just told to, you know, follow their regular diet. And then at the end of 12 weeks, and it can take a while to see results, four weeks for acne is typically not enough. So mm. at the end of 12 weeks, they found a significant benefit for acne with the low glycemic index diet. So just design these studies completely differently. Mm -hmm. Okay. So they're not, they're not looking at specific foods so much as uh, patterns of eating. Correct. Yeah. And that's one nice thing I'm seeing is that we're moving away from like a single food and really looking at your entire diet and the entire, you know, the quality of your entire diet and your pattern. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. All right. Well, so I'd, I'd love to dive in and I, I, I don't know if I'm embarrassed to say my first question is and it's an honest question. It's not like me setting it up for my podcast listeners. Like what is skin? Oh, that's a good question. No, that's a good question. Um, I never heard. It. Yeah. So if we think about skin, it's an organ and it's actually the largest organ in the body. Um, and so anything that provides that outer protective covering protection for your body is considered your skin. And that is everywhere. Uh um, so so its job is essentially protection is its primary job. Its primary job is protection, but it definitely has other functions because we well protection is key because it's protecting you against, you know, the environment. It's protecting you against microbes. It's protecting you against irritants. It's protecting you against temperature change. It's protecting you against physical harm to the to the inner organs. Um, but then it also has other functions. So it's involved in sensory processing, providing information about your environment. It's involved. It has its own components of the immune system that are found located in the skin. Um, and so there's a lot more to it than just protection. But that is its main primary function. Uh -huh. Now, it also it also I know from experience sweats. Oh, yeah. Temperature <laughs> yeah. Right. as a runner, especially. Right. And then me, I'm in Houston. So, uh -huh. um, yes, temperature regulation, huge function. You're absolutely right. Um, and it also lets things in. Right. We put we put creams on because some things get through. Right. It's just sort of a, yeah. a smart filter. Yeah. Yeah. Smart filter. Indeed. Yeah. There are certain things you want to be absorbed through your skin. Um, and other things that you want to keep out. So mm -hmm. yes, and that's such an important part right now. I mean, if you think about there have been recent warnings about hand sanitizers that contained methanol, which mm -hmm. if you rub it on your skin can get right through that barrier. Um, so that's a very important function. You're right. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when I think about synthetic substances, artificial things that are created, I, I can't think of anything that works like skin does that that can do all of those different functions, which seem either like, you know, completely unrelated to one another or even contradictory, like protect, yeah. protection versus letting things in and out. What is like what differentiates like the, the structure of skin from other parts of the body that allows us to do all these tricks? Uh, you know, that's a really um, I love the way you just said that, because you're right. Mm -hmm. There's nothing synthetic that 
can do as fabulous a job as the human skin. Um, and part of the way, and I always say like the human body is designed so beautifully. It's just hard to replicate that. So one of the ways it does that is, um, it has several layers. And so we talk about the epidermis as being the outermost layer and the dermis, the layer below that, and then the fat below that. But within those three layers, there's so many different components. So there are definitely, um, you know, sweat glands, And within the top two layers, we have a lot of immune cells and a lot of sensory organs. But the main way that it protects us is just the way it's designed. It has a lot of people describe it as uh, cement and mortar. So you've got blocks that really are building blocks of your skin that provide a lot of protection. But then you've got little gaps between them that allow, you know, water in and out, let's say. Um, and within those gaps, we have lipids that help fill in those gaps. So all of those different pieces together are what allow it to do these different functions. Hmm. Uh-huh. And so is, is, there, is there any way in which the skin can be an analogous to a muscle in terms of like I'm thinking about things like like in my experience, like calluses or hmm. like like so many like when I think about lifestyle like in general, oh, yeah. I think human beings are living a very unnatural lifestyle. We're eating weird foods. We're not exercising. I'm also wondering, is there a component that we're 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 soft? We're surrounded Mm. by soft things. We're not like bouncing against trees and sleeping on rocky ground. (laughs) Is there anything about the skin that needs to be used more than we're using it? That's interesting. No, I haven't necessarily heard of it exactly that way. I think calluses is definitely important. Your skin can respond to outside forces and it can change in response to those outside forces. But I think in terms of, you know, bumping up against things, your skin can adapt. We haven't lost that ability to adapt. Um, But one thing I will say that we are starting to notice is that um, one of the things that we're seeing is this, uh, our immune systems have become more jumpy over Mm. time, sort of hyper reactive. And we're starting to see that with our skin as well. Um, that we are starting to see increased rates of certain skin conditions, perhaps in response to all of these changes in our environment. Um, but these are talking about skin inflammatory conditions. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one area where I think, yeah, what you're talking about comes into play. And some of it, there's a gut skin connection that seems to be in play also, where when you mess with the gut microbiome, that you might also be affecting the way your skin works. Ooh, does that do you think that has anything to do with the microbes sending messages to each other? Because I know that our microbiome is also on our skin as well as in our guts. Yeah, so it's a really interesting area of research. It hasn't been fully proven, but that's one theory is that um, yeah, that the gut microbiome might be communicating with other microbes in and on our body. Um, but right now, a lot of the focus has been on the gut microbiome producing metabolites like short chain fatty acids, producing mm-hmm. substances that we know help strengthen the lining of the gut, but have also been shown to help strengthen the skin barrier function to really help that skin barrier function even better. So that's one way that we believe they're connected. Hmm. I guess the gut is sort of a, a type of skin, right? We, we don't want uh, yeah. leaky gut. We, so we want some protection and 
integrity, but we also want the right things going in and out? Yeah, I think it's very similar in that sense that, um, yeah, it has to act, you know, the lining of your gut has to protect you, but it also has to be a smart filter, just as you said. So there are a lot of similarities in that sense from a functional standpoint of how our skin barrier works, too. Mm -hmm. Right. So in the book, you talk about sort of two main things. You talk about like these, you know, conditions and diseases, the eczemas and dermatitis and all that. But you also talk about just normal skin and you redefine like aging, right? Oh, like, yeah, like it's what we think of as I'm getting set, you know, jowls and my skin is sagging and it loses its glow and I'm getting wrinkles like most of us think of that as normal parts of aging. But you're saying that you can speed it up or slow it down. You can change the dial based on yeah. a lot of decisions that you make. Can you That's right. Yeah, absolutely. And I think a lot of people when they think about aging skin, they think of um, two things. You know, one is just age and the second is UV radiation. You know how much sun exposure you've mm. had. But you're absolutely right all of your lifestyle changes we're starting to find with more research can affect it. And I'll just give you one example of, you know, when you look at certain people, you, you can start to wonder, like, why do they look younger than somebody else? And I'm presuming that they've had the same degree of sun exposure and that they haven't had any cosmetic procedures. But they actually did this great study in the Netherlands where they looked at elderly Dutch individuals and they controlled for all of these other factors, what their weight was, what kind of sun exposure they'd had. And after controlling for all of those other variables, what they found was that if you had a healthier diet, you appeared younger, hmm. visibly younger. On the flip side, if you had a eating pattern that was dominated with red meat and snacks, you had more wrinkles. And so it's kind of interesting. We're starting to approach this question from lots of different angles. And I think the population research studies are really interesting. Um, you know, and that's just mm -hmm. one example. There was another, and I think this example is so interesting, where they looked at um, a group of individuals and they measured their blood glucose levels. And none of these individuals had diabetes. So these were all non-diabetic patients. But as their blood glucose levels increased, what you started to see was that they developed more wrinkling based on independent assessor, you know, based on independent assessments of their wrinkle status. Mm. So we're starting to see more evidence like that. OK, and so, so what, what are the mechanisms? You talked about red meat and snacks and by snacks I'm translating as like high sugar. Yeah, high, high fat, um, white carbs. Yeah, processed carbs, Process, processed carbs. So what 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 do we think or know are the connections between those classes of foods and aging skin? Well, I'll give you. Um, so we know that there's three main factors that age the skin. There's oxidation, there's major and minor inflammation, and there's glycation. And I'll just talk about glycation first, because that's where the processed snacks and the red meat really come into play. So glycation, you know, from a chemical standpoint, it's uh, the process whereby a sugar molecule binds to a protein molecule. But the way I describe it for my patients is you want to think about caramel. If you think about caramel, you're, you're putting sugar with butter and you end up with this really sticky, gooey substance. Mm. Well, that's what happens when you have high sugar levels in your bloodstream in your body. 
those high sugar levels combine with the proteins in your body, and they produce a new substance, um, new compounds called advanced glycation end products. And we call those ages for short. And those ages are kind of like sticky caramel because they glob on to your collagen. And when you have all these sticky substances glomming onto your collagen, you, uh, you just end up with this kind of tangled mess. If you think about collagen kind of being like a soccer net, you know, one of the reasons collagen works so well is because it's got all these evenly arrayed fibers, kind of like a net. And that's why it just bounces back. It's so, you know, it bounces and then it comes back to baseline. But mm -hmm. if you stuck a bunch of caramel in there, now you've just got this tangled net. And so what happens is you start to lose elasticity. It starts to get stiff. And over time, it just starts to sag. So that's why, um, you know, eating these processed carbs that raise your blood sugar levels ultimately start to damage your collagen. Mm. And the way the red meat comes into play is you don't just produce ages in your body. You can actually eat them. And when you when they've done research studies on what foods contain ages, the highest levels were in bacon. Um, so some of the highest levels were in things like fried, grilled, roasted, and broiled meats. Hmm. Um, so you're, yeah. <laughs> you're saying that bacon is not the fountain of youth? I know, right? Shocking. <laughs> it's not. Like, if you want your skin to look like bacon, eat bacon. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> yes, I mean, it's so interesting because when I think of like eating sugar, I think, well, it goes into my stomach and like it knows what to do with it. Like, I know it's not yeah. good for me, but my my sort of mythical picture is sugar goes into my body and it gets handled more or less. But but you giving me this image of like a soccer net full of caramel, like this, the skin. Yeah, like that's, that's a very different. That, that gives me a very different um, relationship with sugar. Yeah, right. I mean, I think you're right. For a long period of time, certainly our bodies know what to do with that sugar. But once it kind of overwhelms the system um, and the thing about that caramel on your collagen, your body, it's it's permanent. So you can prevent future um, production of ages. But once the ages are there, it's permanent. You can't reverse that. Um, once the damage is done to your collagen, it's done. Um, so that's what makes it really so challenging. Mm. And uh, I mean, you know, I, I don't know the exact figures, but sort of the beauty industry, the skin oh. industry must be multiple billions of dollars a year. Oh, uh, it's it's huge and growing every time. There was one um, there was one study that I just referenced um, where the global beauty supplement market, and this is only supplements, was expected to reach $7 billion in the next few years. People are really hoping that they can take a pill and sort of undo some of the damage that they've done over, you know, over the course of many years. Mm. So, I mean, one of the, the words, you know, popped into my head when you're talking about collagen is I know people are trying to eat collagen yeah. right? or drink collagen and bone broth. Any, any evidence that consuming collagen makes your skin better? You know, it's so interesting that you asked that because they have put out several studies and there was a recent uh, journal article where they looked at 11 different randomized control trials and almost all of them were either funded by the manufacturer 
or supported by the manufacturer. And then they reported on these outcomes that are pretty not that impressive. Um, you know, I think people think that they might drink collagen supplements and their wrinkles will go away. But they looked at things like water loss from the skin or, you know, very vague outcomes. So I personally have not been impressed by the research that's out there. I do not take supplements like that myself. Um, what they're describing is pretty minimal. You know, A, the, the results that they've been describing are not that impressive. B, the studies have been all over the place, all sorts of doses and types. C, a lot of them have been funded by the manufacturer. And D, um, the, there's so much we don't know about what they're putting in there. Um, we just did a study where we pulled a bunch of supplements off the, off the shelf to look at where they're getting their collagen from, and half of them didn't even tell you. Is it from cowhide? Is it from cow hoofs? Is it from fish skin? So personally, I don't take collagen supplements. Mm -hmm. um, before we get to food, are there any supplements that do work? Um, in general, I am a strong proponent of foods over supplements. I will say that if you are, of course, deficient in a nutrient, that supplementation is very important. So, But if you're talking just purely baseline, your nutrient status is normal, is there any supplement you can take to sort of supercharge skin benefits? We haven't, I haven't found any impressive evidence. And there's been a lot of research about things like biotin and zinc above normal levels. I haven't been convinced by any of it. Mm -hmm. um, I do have to say some interesting research on probiotics and prebiotics um, being being done. I'm keeping an eye on that. Also, some interesting research about nicotinamide, which is a B vitamin. I'm keeping an eye on that, but um, but nothing definitive yet. Gotcha. All right. So let, now let's let's talk about food. Is th there's there's evidence that um, that certainly the, you know the the whole food dietary pattern hot, heavy on vegetables, heavy on plants is uh, preventive. How, how good is the evidence? Well, you mentioned the Dutch study sort of in general, but I, we're looking at like a population. I'm sure there's not that many people in, in elderly people in Holland at like the really pristine end of, <laughs> right. of the scale. How, how good is the evidence that like whole food diet heavy on plants is, is protective? I have to say we definitely need more research on the full dietary patterns. That's what we're lacking right now. I can tell you that we have lots of evidence if you're looking at sort of individual nutrients or individual foods. Um, we have lots and lots of animal studies and bio, you know, biochemical studies, a decent number of human studies. What we're lacking is those big population studies. But there's enough pieces that we're putting together that I feel very strongly that we're seeing benefits. And that's because if you look at the components of it, where you're eating powerful nutrients, we know that those have antioxidant and anti-inflammatory properties, and that's beneficial. And then we also know that you're talking about diabetes prevention with a whole foods plant-based diet. And when you're talking about diabetes prevention, that's huge in terms of the skin. Diabetes is incredibly harsh on our collagen. Hmm. So I think how, from how that so? standpoint, well, um, diabetes, we've known this for centuries, that people with diabetes have poor wound healing. And as we start to look into that, one of the reasons that that is the case is because those high blood sugar levels from diabetes 
they start to damage our collagen. Mm. And so that damage of collagen, okay, on your skin, you start to see it as sugar sag, which is what I call it, where you start to get more wrinkling and more sagging of your skin. But, you know, those effects on collagen are what we see in the blood vessel walls. Um, and that starts to impact your risk of hypertension and cardiovascular disease. So it's all interconnected. Mm. Yeah. And what you reminded me of something that I um, took note of in the book is you, you talk in the very beginning about like the miracle of the skin, like that terrible paper cut you got on your thumb yes. is that you can't even like type to in two days is completely healed as if it wasn't even there. <laughs> yeah. and, like, the skin is like the part of our body that we get to to witness as a miracle, right? Like, <laughs> yes. you, can't, you can't see the insides doing that, right? That's right. Yeah, I think it's so amazing that you can just yeah, exactly. You see this horrible cut on your skin. And then just two days later, it's gone. And that's because your skin just has these beautiful systems to regenerate. So you can actually see your skin regenerating in front of you. And that's why the right foods are really just acting to uh, to supercharge those powers. Mm. And yeah, and another thing that just came to me is when you're mentioning sort of, you know, the, the challenges of doing population research. So I think, you know, with like heart disease or diabetes, um, there's this sort of like it, it makes sense to me that on the inside, we're all the same. But clearly yeah. on the outside, different people have different skin, like different groups of people. Yeah. Are there differences in like does does one skin type age better than another or less or more sensitive to certain things like we we know that you know darker skin is i believe more uh resistant to sun damage Correct. like what what uh, is you know are we is there opportunity to learn more interesting things because of these different skin types or does it interfere with research i think it would be a fascinating area to study but there's been hardly any research done in that area beyond sensitivity to UV radiation. So right now, that's what we focused on ethnic and racial differences, how they respond to UV radiation. But that is definitely a fascinating area. Right now, we don't have any evidence that um, if you're of a different ethnic group that your collagen, let's say, would react differently to foods. So we haven't seen that. So right now, I approach everybody very similarly. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. Gotcha. Uh, so you said we do have we do have, um, I guess, reductionist evidence about specific foods and uh, skin health. Oh, yeah. Right? So <laughs> we uh, while, while we're waiting for the patterns, um, <laughs> yes. what, what are the what are the puzzle pieces that we have? What, what are the what's the most the strongest connections of like happy skin foods? Well, I'll tell you that um, I think one of the easiest ones to measure in terms of human volunteers is how well they can protect themselves from sun exposure. So one of the questions that researchers have asked and I've asked is, okay, can you make your skin sun stronger? In other words, can you make your skin more resistant to a sunburn, let's say? And we've actually been able to demonstrate that with multiple foods. And there was one study that I just loved because this is kind of how you would design a pharmaceutical study. Like you would give a person a pill and have them take it every day for 10 weeks. But what they did was that they gave these subjects two tablespoons of tomato paste. So they ate tomato paste every single day, two tablespoons for 10 weeks. And they measured how quickly they would sunburn before and after the 10 weeks. And after the 10 weeks of, you know, keeping everything the same, just that 
tomato paste, they were actually able to be sun stronger. So they did not sunburn at the same level. It was really remarkable if you think about it, because, you know, if you were to ask somebody, how quickly do you sunburn? You don't think of that as something that you can change. But Hmm. this study showed that you can. And they've repeated it multiple times um, with tomato paste, with tomato paste and olive oil. They've looked at pomegranate. Um, So they've looked at sort of different foods that can um, that can cause this effect, green tea, polyphenols. So it's interesting to me that, I mean, it's fascinating that you can, you can change your sensitivity to sunlight. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, that goes into this whole sense of like, why would the sun be bad for us? Like, Ah. you know, yeah, uh, because I grew up essentially scared of the sun. Like, you know, you have the hat. Like I actually came from a family where we used to put tinfoil on your nose at the beach. Like, yeah, I understand we're supposed to avoid like really, you know, devastating burns. But like I grew up scared of this, like the sun is the bad thing in the sky and you need to protect yourself from it. It it doesn't really make sense from an evolutionary perspective that like my ancestors were living in caves and under rocks and 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 we only make vitamin D from sun exposure. So it seems like like, you know, if we look at a lot of paleolithic human diets, you know, 100 grams of fiber and all these plant foods, then maybe the food itself was was like super sun protective. Yeah, I suspect that there is a lot to that. And also, you know, the whole sun exposure thing, there's certainly a spectrum of it where, um, you know, you don't want to live in a cave the rest of your life. Um, But you also absolutely don't want to be getting those blistering sunburns. I think what you said is really interesting, though, that um, that they were eating such highly nutrient rich foods that they were consuming protection from a lot of these environmental factors. And it's not just, well, you know, in modern times, we've got stress and pollution, in addition to UV radiation, that's really amping up our free radical, you know, free radical production. But yeah, in in Paleolithic, man, I can just imagine that they had worked out all these systems to protect themselves from all these intense situations. Mm. You said stress can can damage our skin? Yes. So, you know, one thing you mentioned was how does sun actually damage our skin? And um, and I talk about the fact that UV radiation increases the production of free radicals in the skin. And I think of free radicals as these really damaging compounds that are just unstable and they're ping-ponging around in your layers of your skin. But in the process, what they're doing is they're damaging the proteins of your skin, like collagen and elastic fibers. They're damaging the DNA in your skin. They're damaging the lipids in your skin. And so when you think about everything that free radicals are doing, um, so UV radiation is not the only reason you develop free radicals. Stress can also increase the production of free radicals. Um, And even just the processes of normal living, you produce free radicals during that process. Hmm. You mentioned earlier that one one of the processes of aging is inflammation. Yeah. So inflammation is what happens when I cut myself, right? Yeah, that's right. But you can have major inflammation like you have a cut, but you can also have micro inflammation. So if you talk about this process of free radicals ping ponging around in your skin, they cause damage. But inflammation is really just your body's repair processes. And chronic inflammation is those processes that are just out of control. 
So if you think about free radicals in your skin, sometimes those free radicals cause damage. And so your body jumps to repair that damage. Mm -hmm. But sometimes that repair process goes out of control and it causes more damage than what you started with. And that's that process of chronic inflammation. And that process of chronic inflammation also causes damage to your skin. Gotcha. This is like, this is like the Roomba chewing up my carpet after it cleans. <laughs> yes, I like uh, that a lot. Uh, yeah, control. exactly. Gotcha. All right. So we know we know about tomato paste, um, pomegranates. You you talk a lot about uh, spices. Oh, yes. I talk about spices and herbs as being triple threats because I talk about the three main processes that damage your skin oxidation, inflammation, and glycation. Well, spices and herbs actually can combat all three of those processes. So they have high levels of antioxidants, so they can quench those free radicals. They have high anti-inflammatory powers, and they're even anti-glycation. So they can even interfere with those caramel compounds glomming onto your collagen. They can even interfere with that process. So that's why I talk about them as being triple threats and so important for healthy skin. Hmm. So what, what are some examples? Well, I think the one that a lot of people have heard about is cinnamon. So I think cinnamon is one of these great spices that we probably um, that maybe some of us use, but could use even more. But it goes way beyond that. They've actually shown really impressive results from um, in the laboratory and animal studies from things like cloves, um, I'm going to put garlic and ginger in here, even though they're not technically necessarily spices and herbs. But we've also seen beneficial effects from oregano, from thyme, from saffron, from cilantro. And, um, and if I haven't named a spice or herb, I kind of suspect that it's probably just because we haven't chosen to study them. Mm. Um, and I'm going to name the big granddaddy of them all, which is turmeric. Um, that's one a lot of people have heard of, but that's been studied much more extensively and lots of powerful benefits there. Mm. How, so how do they work? Well, I mean, what, what I mean, spices are sort of like the bark or the berries They're, They tend to yeah. be like spicy, right? They tend to have very concentrated, yeah. intense flavors. Is there something that's right? Is there something about like this, you know, the signature? I don't know if we're getting into sort of woo woo homeopathy, but something that tells <laughs> human beings like this is a powerhouse that, that's connected to the fact that it's like highly tasty. I think that's interesting. But um, what we focus, what the research is focused on is really specific compounds like they've tried to really break this down. Um, and the research that we have to date has shown that specific compounds in those spices and herbs. Um, so, for example, in turmeric, curcumin is just one component. And they've studied that in the laboratory. And that's where they've shown that it has all these beneficial effects. So I think, um, you know, we've broken it down into these different compounds. And um, whether it's from the bark or the berry or the um, or the leaf or the twig, I, I think it's just the fact that they're so concentrated, these natural antioxidant and anti-inflammatory compounds that spices are just highly concentrated sources of those. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. So um, most most of the patients you see are coming in with conditions and diseases as opposed to healthy people who want to prevent aging, right? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I write a lot about um, how to use food to combat aging of the skin. 
But in my practice, it's focused on patients with chronic skin inflammation. Mm -hmm. Okay, so the thing I have heard that we we give to everyone with chronic chronic skin problems is steroids, mm. right? Which are essentially stress chemicals. So, yeah. do you, which is interesting. Yeah. Right? <laughs> do you, can you work with people like? Are you just prescribing the the standard medical pharmacopoeia, or or can you work with people with skin disorders through lifestyle as well? Well, my practice specifically is focused on patients with allergic skin reactions. And so a lot of what I do is really focused on lifestyle in the sense of let's change your skincare to eliminate anything that might be bothering your skin. Mm -hmm. And then let's also give you information if it's relevant about food allergies. And then if there's any way to maximize your skin's healing potential, you know, by using powerful foods that help your skin heal and also considering the role of the gut microbiome eating to help the gut microbiome to also help your skin barrier. So I approach it from that standpoint, but my practice is really concentrated on patients with allergic skin reactions. Mm -hmm. So I do prescribe steroids when needed. I mean, I talk about the fact that sometimes if your skin is out of control, you need to just quiet that fire quickly. And so I use steroids in that respect. But in my practice, steroids are really meant to be used to calm something down quickly and then to be withdrawn while we're finding other ways to help your skin improve. Mm. So definitely so, one tool in my armamentarium. Uh huh. So g given that steroids can work quickly, do you find that your patients have stress responses that lead to allergic reactions even independently of food? Um, you know, the way I, I and this is another area that's really interesting. Um, intense stress can definitely cause behaviors such as scratching mm. that can worsen the skin. But even independent of behavior change, stress can stress does seem to increase skin inflammation. Um, it is rarely acting alone, though. So I always tell my patients stress did not cause your skin inflammation, but stress might be contributing to it. Uh -huh. So one factor. So it might, it might push it from a nine to a 10 and it becomes yeah. a, a manifest symptom. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Mm. Um, so when you do work with with people, is, is it uh, there's a lot of elimination. Now, I don't know anybody who's allergic to sugar per se. So like how do you <laughs> right? Sugar is like the sugar sag. It's the big problem, but it's not implicated directly in what you're helping people with. Right. How, how do you navigate that's, that? That's correct. So it's not implicated directly. So in my patients with skin inflammation, we're not necessarily talking directly about sugar. We're talking about other things that they might eliminate. Although I have to say one way that it might play a role with skin inflammation is if you have a high sugar diet, we know that that damages good gut microbes. And one of the secondary effects of that might be more skin inflammation. Mm -hmm. But yeah, typically the sugar conversation is for patients with aging skin more than uh, more than skin inflammation. Uh huh. So do I mean, do you work with people for whom a dietary change like is, is a challenging thing to talk about? I um, so because I'm focused on Sometimes there might be food allergies playing a role in in the skin. That's an easier conversation, I think, to have. I can say, well, your test showed this, so mm -hmm. let's eliminate that. Um, it's definitely a harder conversation to talk about 
changing your entire eating pattern. Um, but in my practice, since we're just focused on skin inflammation, I'm typically not discussing the entire eating pattern. But what I do is I do refer my patients to additional sources to, um, to really focus on, okay, well, how can you eat the most anti-inflammatory diet possible, which may have a benefit on skin inflammation as well? Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Um, so where, where are you hoping that research goes? Like, what, what, what are you like really curious about that you hope will be explored and uh -huh. discovered? What I really want are randomized controlled trials of skin disease treated with an anti-inflammatory whole foods diet. I mean, that's where I really want to see it coming. And I know there are people applying for grant funding right now in this area. It's a challenging area to to achieve grant funding for. Mm. Um, but that's really my hope, whether it's a patient with psoriasis or eczema or rosacea. I really would love to see randomized control trials of that anti-inflammatory diet. How is it going to help your skin? Hmm. Well, um, why is it so hard to get funding for that? Well, I think there just aren't as many funding sources for that approach as there are, you know, as I'm sure you, you know, as there are for pharmaceutical approaches. Um, and with the NIH, there's, you know, so pretty much you're going to the NIH and, and they have so many competing mm -hmm. grant applications. But that's the dream. That's what I'm hoping for. Gotcha. Gotcha. And what was your what was your goal in writing Glow? Since, you know, your practice doesn't appeal to the people who are going to read this necessarily, except, you know, the the, the psoriasis, rosacea, uh, eczema folks um, like you wrote a book for for people like me who want to have healthy skin as they age. What, what are yeah. you hoping to accomplish? Are you thinking about expanding your practice or doing other things or just the book is out there? To, to yeah. <laughs> no, I really I mean, I had several goals with the book. One was to get more dermatologists talking to their patients about it. Mm. I'd really love to see my field talking more about this intersection of diet and dermatology. I've also written a lot of medical journal articles, which can be harder for patients to access and understand. So I really wanted to put it in layperson's terms and a really accessible way. And then finally, I have to say that, um, you know, on my own health journey, I've come to the conclusion that vegetables are the key, um, you know, that <laughs> there are just so many health issues that would be improved if we ate a lot of vegetables, a lot more vegetables, in addition to, to all the other healthy foods. And so I wanted to give my patients and my readers and members of the public just one more reason to adopt a healthy whole foods diet. Um, so that was my, you know, and of those really my, my overriding goal is to just add to that conversation, give people another reason and show them that it really is um, impacting not only these other health conditions, but even just from the day to day, you know, how you look in the mirror. If that's one more motivation, if that's the motivation you need, I wanna mm -hmm. make sure that you have the research that shows that it does make a difference. Gotcha. So I, I found out about you from a uh, plantrician project email. You're speaking at the virtual oh, yes. plant based nutrition healthcare conference. Are you getting opportunities to speak to your peers who are not necessarily lifestyle medicine aficionados? aficionados? I do. Yes, I'm so excited about speaking at the Plantrician Project. So I've spoken on the national level to a number of dermatology organizations. So I've really focused on spreading my message there. And then certainly in um, the, uh, the, the medical schools, um, 
in this area and the hospitals that I'm affiliated with, I'm working on spreading that message there as well. But yeah. I would love to reach a wider audience as well uh -huh. that's not healthcare professionals. Mm. From the healthcare professionals, do you get pushback or skepticism? <laughs> you know, it's interesting because I first started writing about this over five years ago. And I think at that time there was a little bit of skepticism. But now and it took me three years to I, I had to apply to give a talk at my national conference three years before I was finally accepted to give a talk. And since then, I think the pace of acceptance has really accelerated among the dermatology community that they're starting to see with all of these different research that's coming out there. Um, we're starting to really see adoption of this mindset that, of course, what you eat is going to impact your skin. So I'm so hopeful. I, I'm just seeing a lot of changes in how we're thinking about this area. Awesome. Awesome. Well, con congratulations on your persistence. <laughs> Thank you. So you've, you've gotten under their skin. <laughs> yeah. I love that. Yeah. Yes, I got that fun. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, the, the book is Glow by Rajani Kata, MD. Um, and you have a website as well, right, for people can find out more. I do. Yeah. So I've really focused on putting a lot of my handouts just up on my website. So anybody who has rosacea or eczema or psoriasis, if they want to see what the evidence shows about foods for those conditions, they can just go to my website and it's katamd.com. And kata is my last name, K-A-T-T-A-M-D.com. I've got a lot of handouts there. Okay. Uh, so say it one more time. It's, a... it's katamd.com. All right. Yep. Nice seven letter you, uh, domain name. Very cool. <laughs> yeah. Um, and f final question. Um, yeah. And you can punt if you want. Um, I like to, I like to ask people like what, what music are you listening to that other people might not know about that you enjoy and would want to share? Oh, goodness. Um, not specific. I like um, I do love, though, um, just salsa music in general. I don't have a particular. Okay. <laughs> I don't have a particular band or anything that I follow, but I just love to put that kind of channel on. Just listen to salsa music. Gotcha. Well, if, you know, if tomato paste works, why not salsa music? Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Goes right with the theme, huh? Yeah. All right. Well, I'll go. I'll see if I can grab a a, a good playlist to uh, take people out with. So. <laughs> Dr. Rajani Kata, thank you so much. Thanks for this wonderful book and thanks for the work you do. And thanks for taking the time to talk with us today. Oh, thank you for giving me this opportunity. I really enjoyed it. I hope you enjoyed that. If you'd like to find out more, find out links to Dr. Kata's work and her book, you can do so at plantyourself.com slash 428, where you can find the show notes and lots of other goodies. So if you enjoy the Plant Yourself podcast and you'd like to support the show in a very, very easy, simple way that you only have to do one time, the one thing I would ask you to do is to actually on your favorite podcast app or player or platform, leave a review and write a few lines about what you find valuable about the show that really, really helps us spread the word. When people started doing that, the numbers went up, the number of listeners and subscribers increased. And, you know, I'm, I'm trying not to be ego, egotistically um, dependent on a plat the size of my platform and how many people know who I am and all that. 
And at the same time, there is part of me that wants to contribute and make a splash and help turn the boat of the world back into what I think is a, a more fruitful, uh, helpful, kind direction. And to do that, you know, I'm just recording here in my little home office. If nobody hears it, um, as my grandfather, who was a band leader, used to say, you know what the conductor can do with his baton when the musicians don't show up. Um, so, you know, I want the musicians to show up. And I also want the audience to show up. So if you have kind things to say about the podcast and you have not yet taken five minutes to leave a review, I would really appreciate it if you could do that. If you wanted to do another thing, it would be to tell one person about the podcast. If everybody did that, I would do the math, double my listenership overnight. And that would be cool. And again, I'm not doing this for advertising revenue because there is no advertising. This really is, you know, a, a, a mission, a mission driven podcast. And so if you know people who should be part of that mission, who uh, are ready for the messages that we share in this show. Um, I'd really appreciate your help. All right. What else is going on? Um, talk a little bit about running news, which is the weather has cooled down a lot. It was in, it's been in the 60s the last two days. And lo and behold, my times are improving. I was uh, just a little over a 10 minute miles, and that's with some stops and chats uh, and changing the uh, the music on my uh, in my earphones. So I think I'm, I'm getting, getting close back to sort of the, the nine minute pace that I'm used to. And I'm looking to start doing some uh, some other stuff. I did almost a seven miles this morning, so it's starting to feel really, really good in garden news. I think the grapes are going to be ready any time now. We brought in a bunch of eggplant. We've done a final basil harvest. Um, the corn was quite disappointing. Oh, and there are a, the, the technical term is a shit ton of beans, um, which uh, my wife and I are spending evenings shelling. Um, I do not understand how beans are not seventy five dollars a pound. I guess there's machines that do this or uh, or migrant farm workers. But, uh, you know, we bring in bushels of beans and it just takes us hours like it'll take me an hour to, to shell a pound of black beans or Austrian cow peas. It really makes me wonder about our food system, how food can possibly be so cheap. But uh, that's maybe a story for another day. All right. So now let's have some thanks. Thanks, of course, to Will Ridenour, musician extraordinaire, for allowing me to use his beautiful song Sabali Dawn as the theme music for this show. Thanks to all of you Plant Yourself podcast patrons. I'm going to do a bunch of you right now. Ellen Kennelly, Melissa Cobb, Rachel Behrens, Christine Nielsen, Tina Scharf, Tina Ahern, Jeld Nilkanovsky, David Bizek, The Mysterious, Michelle X, Elspeth Feldman, Leah Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, and Michelle Landry. And the latest bunch, the most recent, including Josie Dempsey, Karen Schmidt, Pamela Hayden, Emily Perryman, Olga Sidorowska, Allison Corbett, Richard Stone, Lauren Vaught of Edible Musings, Aaron Hasty, Sean Owen, Sagar Nayak, Erica Piedra, and Danielle Roberts. And add your name here if you like, and I'll read it off next week. So thank you, everybody, for participating, for listening, for writing comments, questions, emailing me feels good to be part of a community of sane and caring people, especially these days. As always, be well, my friends.